Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to uh, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. We are picking up in the same book in which we left off last Lord's Day evening. Uh, Pastor Barrett opened to us some of those later prophecies out of Zechariah about um, a fountain being opened for cleansing and God pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication because the sword of divine justice would fall on the shepherd, the companion of the Lord. And what an important word that is for us. Um, You might not know this, but in the gospel records, Zechariah is quoted um, almost more than any other prophet. And and beginning in the chapter that we're going to look at tonight and then proceeding on with those passages that Pastor Barrett opened to us last Lord's Day, but we are looking tonight at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. For the sake of context, I'm actually going to read down to verse 13, and then I'd invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, where we'll see one of the synoptic gospels, and the gospel of John also touching on this, um, the fulfillment of this um, prophecy. And so, Uh, looking together at Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. The prophet now says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And if you would turn over to Matthew chapter 21, we'll read together there, verses 1 through 11. And now as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and the cross, Matthew records these words. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The fall of a beast of a burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as it is Palm Sunday, it seemed fitting for us to look at an Old Testament prophecy that leads into Palm Sunday, a much 
loved and well-known uh, account. I, I would venture to say if you've been a Christian for any amount of time in your life, this is one section of scripture that you could rattle off from memory. I was thinking back recently at the many hundreds of sermons that I heard growing up in a Christian home and in Reformed churches. I only remember one part of one sermon because I was dead in sins and trespasses, but I remember one part of one sermon, and children listen very carefully, the one part of the one sermon I remember as a boy was a minister emphatically saying God was on the donkey. The infinite God sat on a donkey on his way to the cross. Uh, fast forward till when I was converted in my early 20s and I was watching, and never a good idea to do this, watching one of those uh, History Channel shows about Christianity because it's almost certainly wrong entirely. And, um, and they had a female professor from like Duke Divinity or Chicago Divinity or some divinity school that doesn't believe in the Bible or anything we believe uh, telling us about the Bible. And in this particular segment, and it angered me so much because I was a new believer and I understood God's word and it had become so clear and so alive and so precious to my soul. And, and she said, you know, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. He knew the prophecy in Zechariah. And so he, he reenacted that to make it look like he was the Messiah. And I remember thinking as a young Christian, okay, for the sake of argument, if she's right, then from the virgin birth <laughs> to the resurrection, Jesus would have had to manipulate every prophecy in the Old Testament to fulfill it in himself as a counterfeit, or he's the Messiah to whom all of the Old Testament points, and he is the one that is fulfilling all of these things throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the really important things for us to get is that our faith is not just built on the eyewitness account of Jesus that we love so much of the apostles and the New Testament epistles and all the revelation God gives us. Our faith is grounded on the Old Testament messianic prophecies. It's remarkable the detail that the triune God would give us so many hundreds of years before Christ came to tell us exactly who he would be, exactly what he would do. And, and the prophecy here in Zechariah 9 is among the most exciting. Your king is coming. He's going to be just and having salvation. He's going to be lowly and riding on a donkey. And he does this, and the gospel writers pick up on it because it is so important. And what I want us to see tonight as we look at this together here briefly is first what this prophecy teaches us about the glory of the king's person and then very simply, the glory of the king's work. This passage sort of divides for us naturally. The glory of the king's person, the glory of the king's work. Now, to understand this, you have to know that there is no king in Israel at this period. This is a low point in Israel's history. There is no active king. The closest thing to an active king that Israel had at this time was Zerubbabel, who is very active in the first eight chapters of this book and then sort of fades out of the picture. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. We know that Jesus, in at least one of the branches of his genealogies, is descended by way of Joseph and the adopted line through the kings of Judah, and that among them are Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. And so we understand that prominent in the, the, uh, prominent in the, the biblical account of Jesus and prominent certainly in the prophets and throughout all the prophetic literature is, where is the king of Israel? 
you see, all the prophetic literature is built on the Davidic covenant. That's the context in which the prophetic literature is given to us. It's not built immediately on the Mosaic covenant. It certainly makes use of that previous revelation. It is in the context of the Davidic covenant and God saying that he was going to give David a king who was going to sit on the throne and rule forever. And and that king is spoken of throughout the Psalms. Psalm 72 said that he would extend his kingdom from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea, that he would be a universal king, that he would be a king of the nations, that he would be a greater king than all the kings who went before him. And and Israel's long history is the long history of this is not the king, and this is not the king, and this is not the king. The first two of the best kings uh, err terribly, David and then Solomon. And, And when we come to the period of the exile, there is no hope of the kingdom being established. And now the people are back. And the temple is being rebuilt under the oversight of Haggai, and, and Zechariah is there to encourage the people to look forward with prospect and, and hope, and God is giving them a word of hope in the midst of a period where he is still promising to chasten them with the nations around them. If you were reading through Zechariah's visions, and, and here in chapter 9 through chapter 14, his burdens— that, that God is going to still raise up nations to chasten his people. And yet in the midst of that, and in the midst of God telling them what he's going to do, we have this glorious prophecy. And the Lord says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Um, by the way, if you want to get the most out of the prophets, Read them in light of the Davidic covenant and God's covenantal faithfulness, even when Israel is extremely unfaithful. Um, At the lowest points, God's still saying, I will do what I said I would do. I will fulfill my promise. I will bring a king. It will be of God's doing. The people will not make a king for themselves. The Lord is going to send his own son to be the king. And the Lord is going to be the king. And notice that language, too. He is coming to you. It, it, it carries with it, in many respects, the idea of preexistence. Just like in, in Micah's prophecy, you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are least among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, one to be ruler whose goings forth are from of old. He is going to come to you. He is, he is going to be a divine figure. And notice the first thing that's said about him is that he is going to be righteous and having salvation. Now, there are some translations that say he will be just. And and we live in a day of justice confusion and justice gone wild unjustly. And we don't know what to do with it. We feel guilty because... We have so much slammed down our throats and into our ears about justice, and we don't know how to parse through. And there are people that are going to look at this and say, you know, this says that there is going to be a king who will bring justice to the people. He will execute justice among the peoples. And that is true. Jesus is that king. He will do that. But but the word justice is one and the same with the word righteousness in Hebrew and in Greek. 
And and this is saying more than just he will be a a a just dispenser uh, of of judgment against unrighteousness or a leveler of unrighteousness. This is saying he is going in himself to establish righteousness. Uh, This is where the Reformed get the doctrine of the active imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, John Murray famously said uh, on his deathbed, um, thank God for the active imputed righteousness of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. He He is going to establish righteousness by himself being righteous and only ever doing righteousness. And we heard this morning in the sermon in 1 John chapter 3 that, that um, uh, everyone in him does not remain in sin because in him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. You can never, by the way, meditate enough on the sinlessness of Jesus. We don't meditate enough on the sinlessness of Jesus. Why did Jesus Why did the eternal son have to come in the person of Jesus? And why did he have to be sinless for 30 some years? Because he had to establish a record of righteousness as the last Adam, as the second Adam. Notice that it's linked. He will be righteous and having salvation, that those things are coupled. What kind of king will this be? He will be without sin. Um, I, I like to think through the scriptures sometimes when you think about the sinlessness of Jesus, and it and it bears witness to him everywhere. Um, the demons said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Um, Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Um, the, the, the centurion at the foot of the cross said, surely this was a righteous man. Jesus himself said that the one who came from the Father is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. The writer of Hebrews says that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. That uh, Paul says he was made like us, like sinful flesh, yet without sin. And, and he established a perfect record of righteousness in order to save us. Um, You know, when your heart is terrorized by your sinfulness, you go to the cross and you go to the blood of cleansing, but you also go to the person of the righteous King Redeemer who established righteousness for you. This is why we love justification by faith alone so much. He, he gives us what is his. Listen to what John Calvin says here. He says on this verse, As he came for the sake of others and has been for them endued with righteousness and salvation, then the righteousness and salvation of which mention is made here belong to the whole body of the church. His righteousness is our righteousness. His salvation is our salvation. This is a representative king. This king is coming to represent. By the way, if if we don't have a savior who fully represents us, then we don't have a savior. Let that sink in. If, if we don't have a Savior, if we're not trusting a Savior to represent us and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, then we don't have a Savior. Um, Jesus does what we can never do because we are totally unrighteous by nature. Um, We should love the doctrine of the active, imputed righteousness of Christ, and we should return to it often 
because if we're not settled in that, then we're, we're going to slide into trying to trust what we're doing for our standing on the last day. And Paul says that even those who are zealous for righteousness, the Jews of his day, who are trying to establish it by their own works, they're zealous for God. They're zealous for missions. They're zealous for service. They're zealous for worship. They're zealous for all these good things, but they're not zealous for the righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Christ. They don't get righteousness. They, they, they lose it. They, they don't get God. They don't get eternal life. This is vital for us that the king we need is a righteous representative king who brings salvation. Now, it, you could, if we didn't know the end of this in the New Testament, you could wrongly, and, and many Jews did this through many, many generations and centuries, and wrongly think that the, the king we need is a military conqueror, that he's going to be powerful, that he's going to be, he's, he's going he's gonna to play the man, He's going to use hashtags against effeminacy all the time. He's going to be a strong, powerful king. He's going to be, he's going to be a physical warrior. He's going to ride in with a sword on a war horse, and he's going to dominate and make the people fall before him. And that's not how he comes at all. In fact, <laughs> it's so not how he comes that people can't understand how he can be the king. And notice that Zechariah is preparing these people before he even comes and us now to understand how is he, what is the glory of this king? He comes humble. Um, that's, that's amazing. We are so proud. And he comes humble. And he's the only one who could have been proud of his own virtues and glory and majesty and power, his infinite, eternal unchangeable power and awesomeness and glory. And what does that one do? He comes humble. What would we do? We'd come proud. He comes humble. That's, that's the mystery of the gospel. He comes lowly. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has made the point that in the gospel records, the only personal characteristic to which Jesus ever draws special attention in himself is, is to his humility and meekness. In Matthew 11, he he says, come unto me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You're, you're not going to go to a king that's not gentle and lowly in heart. Um, I, don't, I don't even want to go to a wealthy person that's mean and ask for help. You're, you're not going to go to a king who's unapproachable. Jesus said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, you'll find rest for your soul. Um, I love that quote where uh, Charles Spurgeon is reflecting on why it was important that Jesus was laid in a feeding trough as a baby, and he said, so that you know that you can go to him. If he's in the feeding trough, you can go to him. You could be the most strung out drug addict, and you can go to him, and he will receive you. There's no amount of dignity you need for him to receive you. The same thing here. If he comes on a donkey, if he comes lowly, if he comes with that sort of humility and approachability, that is meant to encourage us to come to him. When we're at our worst, when you have sinned the worst, you go to him and you say, Lord Jesus, thank you that I can come to you and that you are gentle and lowly in heart and I need rest for my soul. I need you to forgive me and have mercy on me and cleanse me and, 
And that's, that's, that's the king. That's the glory of the king. Um, it's totally countercultural. Totally countercultural entirely. Um, you know, when Jesus was riding in on the donkey, he was showing his disciples what kind of king he would be. Um, the donkey was not a symbol of power and dignity like some theologians mistakenly say. Um, it, it was a symbol of abasement and poverty and and it was not a revered animal. In fact, it was considered unclean and at the book of Exodus, there's the law of the firstborn and the substitution and you could, you could uh, redeem a donkey because the donkey was unclean. It was not, it was not an animal of dignity. It was not like the war horse. Um, notice that there is even that contrast. Notice verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Right in this very section, he contrasts the donkey with the war horse. Um, by the way, this is how the kingdom always works. Um, Jesus would go on and he would, he would hang on the cross, um, also a symbol of shame and an offense to the world and to the flesh. And, and he, he chose for himself disciples that were ennoble. He chose not many wise, not many mighty, not many powerful. He chose the base things of the world, the foolish things. Um, that's the way the kingdom works. We, we tend to think if we just have the smartest and the best and we have the most money and we have this and we have this, then, then we'll show the world what Christianity is. And that's totally contrary, entirely contrary to how the kingdom advances. One old writer, Frederick Krumacher, wrote a great little book called The Suffering Savior, which you should try to read if you can. And he has a really incredible meditation on... Uh, Christ coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. And this is what he says. He says, the whole scene of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem has both a typical and prophetic side. The progress of our Lord, so destitute of pomp, neither clothed in purple or on a war horse or accompanied by ribboned magistrates or dignitaries, but in the simplest attire on the, on the donkey, surrounded by poor fishermen and tradespeople, gives us a hint in what manner Christ for centuries together will manifest himself on earth until his second coming. And the expressly quoted and now accomplished prophecy of Zechariah confirms and attests this in the words, behold, your king comes to you lowly, a word that describes at the same time the entire, the idea of an entire absence of display, pomp, and dignity, and this is the attribute which is peculiar to his government to this hour. That's an awesome quote. To this hour, it's no different than at that hour. He is showing us how his kingdom is going to advance. He's going to use humble people that want to exalt him. He's going to use self-emptied people that are not seeking glory for themselves. He's going to use men and women like you and me that, in the words of Paul, are the off-scouring of all things, the scum of the world. That's awesome. Um, 
while we, while we certainly want our children to excel in life, we want them to excel in understanding this more than anything. This is more important than what kind of job they get and what kind of salary they make. That's not unimportant. This is eternally more important to understand that the king comes lowly, gentle, despised, and rejected of men, and that's the way his servants are to be willing to function in his kingdom for his glory. Now, very briefly, secondly, the glory of the king's work. And here, notice Zechariah is giving us uh, more. Notice this. Uh, he, will, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, verse 10. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, um, there are theologians who believe that this was fulfilled during the Maccabean period after the Greeks had been expelled from the land of Israel and their rule under Alexander and then Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and there was a time of peace there, but that is not what Zechariah is talking about. He's talking about a time of unbounded peace, a time of unsurpassed peace, and, and a, time, a time in which God's people will trust him, not an army. They will trust him, not, not a war horse. And, and he will come, Zechariah says, and he will speak peace to the nations. I love, this is clearly, clearly um, picked up by the Apostle Paul, I think, in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says to the, that church, and it was full of Gentiles just like us, and they had been converted, and he says he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who are near. And, and in Colossians, he says he made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how he can speak peace. He can speak peace because of the glory of his work, what he's going to accomplish at the cross. He can speak peace to the nations. He can say, you, you, you can be reconciled to the God you are not reconciled to. You, you can have your sins forgiven. You can... You can be brought into the family of God. You can be given the blessing of God. You can know God is with you and for you. Um, notice he alludes now to what we mentioned already out of Psalm 72. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a global vision of the Messiah, that, that he is going to have nations serve him from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea. He will have people pay homage to him. And then notice, and this is very important, verse 11, how will he accomplish this? As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Isn't that interesting? Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I could get you to turn back to Genesis 49 briefly. I want us to look at um, a really significant parallel to this and precursor to this. Genesis 49, Jacob is giving the blessing to the 12 tribes, and um, you know Jesus comes from Judah, and the scepter is going to be in Judah, the kingdom is going to come from Judah, and, and this is what we call the Shiloh prophecy. He's, he's going to reign until Shiloh comes. That's, that's a messianic prophecy, one of the first clear ones in the book of Genesis. And, and he's going to be given the tribute of the peoples. And notice, notice uh, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the people, listen, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is where Zechariah is picking up from. Notice this, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. He has trampled the wrath of God and it's cost him blood all over his garments, his own blood for our sin, his own blood, trampling the grapes of God's wrath for us. Um, that's the glory of the king's work. You know, um, we are meant to be astonished, and I think we're often not astonished by these things because they become so familiar to us. We're meant to be astonished by this. We're meant to be astonished that God could give such a clear word about how we would identify the coming king, and we're meant to be astonished at how clearly that unfolds in the gospel records. Um, with what ease Jesus tells his disciples, go, go get a donkey for me. Go tell the man to give me the donkey. What should we say? Say the Lord has need of it. He doesn't say the son of man. He doesn't say the Christ. He says the Lord has need of it. And they bring the donkey and they bring the donkey's mother and, and everything just falls into place perfectly. And the result, which is beautiful, is the people praise just as they were commanded to do in Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. How, how ought we to respond to this? We are to praise the glorious, humble, conquering, righteous king. We are to praise him. That's, that's the only tribute we can give him. I read a great quote this week I'd never read before. I was uh, kind of shocked because it, it was so good. I thought surely people would read this more, but James Boyce said something along these lines. He said, how can we ever repay God for all that he's done for us? And he said, the only way is to take more from him. The only way you can repay God for all that he's done for you is to receive more from him. You can't ever repay him. All you're called to do is to rejoice in him, delight in him, trust in him, Call on him, turn to him, walk with him, proclaim him. That's, that's the only way. You, you can never repay him for all that he's done. Um, but, but what God wants for us is that we would praise this king and that we would praise him for the greatness of his salvation for us. You know, there's that beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 7 where the nations are gathered together before the throne and they have palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out and they're praising the lamb, the slain lamb, for what he did to redeem a people to, to himself. That's, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to praise him for the greatness of his salvation. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would stir us up, that you would astonish us, that even as we contemplate what we know so well afresh, that you would give us a new uh, excitement and joy in all that we have in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the righteous king who brought salvation 
and that you are lowly and that you are gentle and that you welcome sinners to yourself. Lord, would you please draw us, every man, woman, and boy and girl in this room, and would you help us to praise you even now as we continue to worship? Would you give us great joy in knowing that you have fulfilled these things by your death and resurrection? We pray these things in your name. Amen.